Hour number two, Canuck Central in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. If you missed hour one of the program, talked about the final four teams in the Stanley Cup playoffs and uh, what they have that the Canucks possibly don't have and where the Canucks still need to get better. Also, Irfan Gaffar joined us for that conversation of where the Canucks are going to improve this offseason. We'll get more to that next, but let's bring in our next guest. It is Allison Lucan of Root Sports. Thanks for this, Allison. How are you? I'm doing all right. A little bit more free time than I'd like this time of year, but I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, it was quite the playoff run the Seattle Kraken went on. I mean, uh, they were, I guess, for a time, the 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 underdog story of these Stanley Cup playoffs of of the season, really. Uh, when when you look back on it, um, what was sort of behind uh, the Seattle Kraken's great year? Yeah, you know, I think um, I can honestly count myself among those pleasantly surprised with what this group was able to put together um, with what we thought would happen going into this season. But, you know, it is cliche that uh, it's been talked about time and time again with this team, but the secret ultimately became their depth. The front office put together a roster. They brought in some good pieces in the offseason and then, you know, brought in a line combination structure that really allowed each line to be dangerous and have points coming from any given line and and often from defensive pairs as well on any given night. And that versatility of the depth really helped them get through a lot of trying times because it made it harder for opponents to know where to key in on in terms of trying to keep them quiet. Absolutely. And I mean, they got to, I mean, I wouldn't say get away. I mean, they had success playing their team game to a high degree. And it's not like they didn't have players that also played at a star level. And, you know, people got a laugh out of Kevin PX said the other night mentioning on Hockey Night during one of the broadcasts <laughs> saying Yanni Gord could be a $10 million player if he played in for the playoffs. But the point remains, I mean, he was he's playing as about as well as any center in the league in the postseason. So if you're getting those types of performances, then even if a player is not called the franchise center, it's doing the same thing on the ice, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that the the intangible side of that, the humility to be able to say, I'll be in any role you ask me to be as long as we win is part of what Yanni was able to do. And I laughed when I heard Kevin say that because I'm sure Yanni agrees. He'll give him a cut if he can get that kind of deal. But, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, he, he he has the experience. He has the will. And, and he came in with an energy after last season to really push this team forward you know, and I will say, even in this second round where Dallas is obviously a very talented squad and, and ultimately came out the better team, but as the Kraken fought to stay in this through seven games, there were nights you could see Yanni Gord in particular pulling his team into the fight, and it was his line that often got the most difficult assignments instead of competition, and uh, he, he really performed well and stepped up. You know, there were definitely some some key acquisitions, and certainly uh, the rookie year of of Matty Beneers helped this team get to the postseason. But a lot of the the turnover, and I guess just um, kind of uh, Ron Francis committing to what he did at the expansion draft sort of helped here, right? And and also having Dave Haxtell as head coach and believing in his process. But that works 
And then some of these, you know, return players like Jordan Everlay plays a big role this year. You have Vince Dunn and and Adam Larson potentially, uh, you know, one of the better pairings across the National Hockey League this year. It was some of what they did in the expansion draft and just that continuity where they they started to build more of a a team process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you look at this expansion draft and and it's easy to compare it to Vegas, but we know that GMs got smarter um, this second time and there wasn't maybe as much talent available as Vegas had access to. But, you know, when you look back, I think what was smart about what Ron Francis and his group did is they gave themselves room, right? And they had cap space. And then when the team didn't perform the way that they had hoped, you know, they were able to get a lot of capital in terms of draft picks. So come this offseason, not only were they able to bolster the prospect pipeline in terms of those draft picks, but that became also currency to get a player like Oliver Bjorkstrand, which in my opinion remains one of the top trades of the offseason. Mm-hmm. And then because there had been that patience, you have the cap space to bring in an Andre Burakovsky, to bring in a Justin Schultz. So as Ron Francis and his group were able to see what they actually had on their hands, then they had the time and space to add to those pieces to make them ultimately as successful as possible. And as far as the plan moving forward, is there, do you think there, is there any maybe desire or, or draw like Vegas kind of did after making their first run to go after more star players and kind of go somewhat all in on where you're at, or is it going to be a lot of let's stick with our process and try to find value where we can, because the team does have significant cap space coming up this off season. Yeah, you know, I think it is going to be patience because they do have cap space, but Vince Dunn has rightly earned himself a pay increase. That's going to be one big piece to watch for sure, and I would have to imagine that's top of the list for Ron Francis and his crew. And, you know, if we look at Francis's experience, even in Carolina, it was a patient approach building to what was intended to be sustainable success. And I think that's what he is planning to do with this group as well. It's going to be interesting for me to kind of flip that argument on its head a little bit and say with what Seattle did and with the fact that they might have some really nice cap space available, are there free agents who are maybe putting Seattle on their list of of possible targets versus this being a market that has to go out and maybe convince a player to come like might have been the case this past offseason? What does that Vince Dunn contract look like? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's going to be a nice one. It's it's going to – Uh, vault him into probably the highest paid player on this team if you look at those nice contracts that Francis and his crew have signed Um, but you know he's earned a lot it's going to be interesting to see um, if any recency bias comes into play I think he was a little quieter than he wanted to be um, on the playoff production side but he's been so good and so well effectively paired with Adam Larson that is what's really allowed his game to, to sing this season so I think that it's going to be a nice payday. Um, we'll see what that negotiation turns out to. I'm not going to put a number out there. I'm not, I'm not as, yeah. as brave as BX just yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's going to be fascinating because, I mean, I look at contract comparables, and there aren't m- many guys who've taken the leap he's taken and then all of a sudden be up for a contract. He is RFA, though. But, I mean, we're talking total money north of 40 to $50 million, and that's maybe on the conservative side. So it's great to be Vince Dunn coming up this offseason. And could the biggest improvement maybe come come internally from a player who's, I mean, every time I watch Maddie, Maddie Beneers play, Allison, I'm just so impressed by his, his, his maturity, how smart he is, how strong he plays. 
And it's easy to forget he was just a rookie playing the way he plays. Could the biggest improvement just come internally for some guys like him on the roster next season? Oh, absolutely. You know, and Maddie himself will say, and, and we have exit interviews tomorrow, and I'll be curious to hear if he's put a little more thought into this after everything being done now. But, you know, he will admit that there have been some lulls, and, and we expect that, right, in a rookie season. This is, this is a workload like he's never seen close to 100 games coming out of an NCAA career. And he was so poised. He was so mature in his game, taking just one penalty the entire regular season. And I think he has learned a lot about this league and how to manage his performance within that and then also how to take advantage of the opportunities that are being given to him on the ice. So I agree. I think there's a big leap to come from this player and perhaps incremental improvement for the next few years, in fact. As far as uh, the coaching staff goes, I mean, David Haxtell, uh, incredibly impressive with how he turned this this team around. Was was there anything specific you noticed as to his you know approach to getting this team to perform at this level? Yeah, you know, I think he mentioned actually in his comments after last night's game that he he sensed from the beginning of training camp that this group was a little different in terms of their attitude and their cohesiveness. And I think what he was able to do was a couple things. First, he was able to provide a lot more stability in terms of his forward and defensive pair combinations. So players got to be more comfortable with one another and got to really play with each other, you know, knowing the chemistry, knowing where each other is going to be. I think that was huge. And I really appreciated also his ability to bring his staff together and adapt when things weren't working. When this team went to overtime the first few times the season, they, they lost quite quickly. And then the Kraken spent a practice intentionally only on overtime play, and they didn't lose a single one for the balance of the season except one. I think it was nine of ten that they won after that practice. And even some tweaks to special teams, the power play still had some work to do, but the penalty kill had a real turnaround come 2023 when the calendar switched. So I think it's that adaptability and that progression that really impressed me with what he did. As far as the front office is concerned, uh, I mean, we saw, I mean, I, I guess not technically part of the executive branch, but we saw uh, obvious, uh, obviously Cammy Granado come over to a bigger role with the Canucks organization year in with being with the Seattle Kraken. We know there are a lot of openings across the league. Jason Botterill's name has been thrown around. Is there a bit of an expectation that uh, the, somebody's going to get poached out of that front office as well this offseason? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I've seen Jason's name out there, too, and he's obviously had experience there. And, you know, I think that front offices, this is this is the best, worst compliment you can have is that your staff is so successful that other organizations want to, to talk to them. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if these names continue to be in conversations. Uh, we'll see who, how many, or if any, move on. Um, but I think after the success of, in particular, this last year building on that inaugural inaugural year, excuse me, are going to draw a lot of eyes to the talent that is on Ron Francis's staff right now, for sure. Uh, when we look at these uh, final four teams that are are remaining, Allison, um, do, do you see a common theme from any of them that's uh, sort of a telling of, of where the other NHL GMs are going to try and copycat from? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know if I see a theme yet. I know this is a copycat league, obviously, for sure. I think one theme that's standing out to me, and I certainly don't want to diminish the position, but I think we've seen so many changes in net or goaltender pulls or, you know, playing more of a tandem, maybe not always intentionally. I think we've never seen less of a focus on riding one goaltender the entire way. So I'm curious to see if that changes up um, how uh, players and front offices and coaches approach uh, their regular season and their postseason. And then 
I am actually curious because I think that, you know, the Kraken depth really made a lot of noise. And if you look at how the Stars ended up defeating the Kraken as compared to Colorado, in my opinion, the Stars had more depth than Colorado did. So I think we're going to start to have more interesting conversations about how much depth do you need. You can't just rely totally on star power. Allison, always appreciate your time. Thanks for this today. Thank you guys so much. Have a great one. Uh, there is uh, Allison Lucan of Root Sports. You can follow her on Twitter at Allison L. And always has great insights on the Seattle Kraken and the rest of the National Hockey League. It's uh, the longstanding question of, of team sports in general, Sat, and maybe less so in basketball because of the nature of the sport and players can play so many minutes. Um, but how much depth do you really need? Um we always have this question in the National Hockey League, but I've always been of the mind that you can't ultimately win without star players. Is there going to be a rethink about that in the National Hockey League, just about how much depth you need to have to win? Maybe to some extent. I think I think we always get caught up in these kind of discussions too, mm-hmm. right? You need depth, you'd need depth, and, and ultimately you do, right? You need to have a bit of everything, but... You need to have your star players come through. I mean, we can look at Toronto, for instance, say, yeah, they need depth, they need depth. Would we, would we be talking about that if there's top players producing at a higher level? Would we be talking about, you know, some secondary production from Edmonton if if Drysaddle didn't get, you know, cold after scoring, you know, 100 goals in the first round against the LA Kings yeah. and kind of using up all his goals in the first round? I mean, so I think we, we always talk about, you know, things like that. And ultimately, I just look at this year – and, and what I see more than anything is you have to keep adding. Any team that, that's got to this point outside of Florida did something throughout the season to get better. We just spent some time talking about the Dallas Stars and how they got to where they got to, but they still gave up a second-round pick to get Max Domi. They still traded Gurionov to get Dadnov, which has been a nice fit and come in, right? But they still made a couple moves at the deadline to add some players to their group, right? Vegas did some little things here and there. So you always have to add players. You need to have extra bodies. I think one thing that gets underrated at the trade deadline isn't the big moves but can you get two or three players who can take regular shifts and give you a little bit of something and I think those are the moves um, and the type of depth that you should be looking more at the deadline and usually the teams that go out and make those big moves aren't the teams that have a lot of success well even um, Colorado last year you know the the players they added how effective they were you know the think of Arturi Lekkanen and uh, Josh Manson weren't necessarily players that they were adding to the top of their lineup. And it's not like they didn't cost them anything. They were expensive acquisitions, but made some bigger, bigger um, contributions further down the lineup than you would say, you know, on the top power play unit or something to that effect. I think if you have, if you are, if you're a team with Stanley cup aspirations, you already have those positions figured out mm-hmm. and it's more about, like it's more about finding and i i think you know the the conversation of identity is often overrated right and it's it can be a cliche of things you just tend to say to tell yourself that that's something you need but i think being true to your identity is very important when it comes to team build and when you go about acquiring these players to add into the middle or the end of your roster they need to be able to fit into your team identity. I think it's 
it's definitely one of the critiques I've had of Toronto where they like they go about building their bottom six thinking only about defense. And then as soon as their star players dry up scoring, it's like, oh, where are we supposed to get scoring from? Well, you, you're kind of building two different teams here. And I don't like not to, to diminish the defensive side of the game or anything like that. It's just understand who you are as an identity, as a team and keep playing to that. And Carolina understands that religiously who they are and what they need and the types of players they want to play for them and with that in mind you know they've had a ton of success with it yeah and it's not always the flashiest most fun thing to watch but it's very repeatable everything they do is very repeatable now what it does do is it has neutered a lot of their um, offensive players up front because i think the players who pay the biggest price for the way um the Carolina Hurricanes play isn't their defensemen, it's their star forwards. Yeah. Because they're the ones that are going to have to really sacrifice a lot of things that they would do. And even, you know... Sebastian Ajo is never coming close to winning an Art Ross trophy. Exactly. Never coming. And he's never coming close to really scratching the real ceiling of what he can do offensively because of how they religiously, like you said, stick to how they play as a team. But because they create a lot of push from their back end and they want their defense to move the puck quickly, and they have guys like Brent Burns who can't skate it very quickly too, they end up being the real catalyst for their offense. You see their defensemen have great years all the time, and that's really where the engine of their team comes from. But their defensemen have to also have to you know, be careful with the chances they take, but they're, they're handling the puck a lot. They move the puck a lot, and they're a real part of how they play hockey, whereas their forwards have to sacrifice a lot more. And it's a bit harder sometimes to get the forwards to sacrifice to that degree, but that's why you have to give Rod Brindamore all the credit in the world. And I still have some questions about, ultimately, are they going to have enough scores? But the way they're going this year, and if they get to the cup final, then maybe it doesn't matter this year. So um, a couple of things I wanted to get to uh, for before we um, we wrap up some of these around-the-league conversations. I think we may have gotten a little bit of a hint. Now, it, it might already start to be smokescreen season, Sat. But the Philadelphia Flyers, Keith Jones, new president, uh, talking today and spoke with uh, our friend and regular Monday insider, Frank Saravalli. And revealed that uh, the Flyers are going to focus a ton on building out their decor in this rebuild that they are about to go through. And he referenced his time as a player with the Nashville Predators and how David Poyle put a massive priority on building a strong defense. And that's how he went about building teams. And that's why Nashville has been relatively consistent for many years around the league. Did we just get a hint at who the Flyers might want to draft at seventh overall if they are going to prioritize defense this much? It seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, based on what Keith Jones had to say. Yeah. Um, I, and and sometimes, especially when you get new people coming into roles, they're very excited. They can't wait to talk about their plan. And, and sometimes more things come out. It kind of reminds me of when Vancouver, when they first made the changes and brought in Trevor Linden and Jim Benning. And it was kind of becoming common knowledge that at six, as long as he was there, Vancouver was going to take Jake Bertanen. You know what I mean? It kind of became like, okay, like you kind of know this is the guy they're honing in on. Every time they spoke, they, they spoke about him in different in a different way. They talked about how they need a power forward and a guy with speed. And, and it became very, very evident, not only based on things people heard, but how they were speaking, that this is the guy they were taking. And I just wonder, Keith Jones, if he's kind of letting the cat out of the bag here a little bit. The Flyers are at seventh overall. You know, we've talked about you know where Reinbacher could go in the draft and – 
You know, could it be in the top five? Probably unlikely with some of the players that are there. But after that, it's anybody's guess. There's definitely a feeling that Reinbacher's going to go somewhere in the top 10. And the Flyers look to be a leading candidate if Reinbacher is there at seven or one of those top defensemen, since there isn't really a consensus. But I think we need to call this like the draft notebook. Yes, I like it. And when we get these little bits of tidbits on the show or any news we get or hear around the league, we're, we're just going to put it into the draft notebook. Keep, keep it in mind. And listen, like these things pay off. Like we've, these things have guided us in the past. I remember we picked up a little while, you know, back when the Canucks ended up um, taking Vasily Putkols in, mm-hmm. and there was some talk that they were going to take Philip Broberg, and we're like, hey, there's kind of buzz out there that Edmonton's going to take Broberg as long as he's there. And then we're like, hey, we're not going to mock Broberg to Vancouver because he's not going to be there. Like, what we're hearing, what we think, and based on some of the stuff out there, this is what's going on. And we'll, we'll keep a closer tabs uh, on what we hear about the flyers and everything, but it goes back to something else we've been discussing. Defensemen always end up going in the top 10 one or two. And as much as the mocks and some of these consensus, the rankings don't have it, don't show it bet on it happening. And maybe even as high as seven, if not higher, man, like it it wouldn't shock me with the variance we're seeing, especially outside the top three. And even some of the suggestions about Mitchkov going outside the top 10, even it's Bedard. It's Fantilli, it's Leo Carlson, and outside of that, roll the wheel, man. Spin the wheel, and we'll see what happens. It's going to be uh, fascinating as we continue to get closer to the NHL entry draft. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. You are listening to Canuck Central.